0: Welcome to Our Opinions Are Correct, a podcast about science fiction, science, and the meaning of existence, and what we might have for breakfast three years from now. I'm Charlie Jane Anders. I'm a science fiction writer. My latest book is Dreams Bigger Than Heartbreak. It's the second book in a young adult space adventure trilogy.
1: I'm Annalee Newitz. I'm a science journalist who writes science fiction, and my latest book is called Four Lost Cities: A Secret History of the Urban Age.
0: So today we're going to talk about the automobile. You know, cars have made our lives better in a bunch of ways. They've created opportunities for mobility for people who might otherwise not have been able to get around at all. But they also come with huge drawbacks, including pollution, congestion, and lots and lots of unnecessary casualties. Like uh, tens of thousands of people die in automobile accidents every year. Millions of people are injured every year. But here in the United States, We tend to romanticize the car and treat it like an important part of our identity as people. And science fiction as a genre has played a huge role in making us kind of worship these horseless carriages. So in this episode, we're going to talk about how science fiction has taught us to love cars, but also about the stories that have been questioning this unholy romance. Also, on our Audio Extra next week, we'll be talking about our fears and hopes for reproductive access now that the Supreme Court seems to be hurtling towards getting rid of uh, Roe v. Wade. And by the way, did you know that this podcast is entirely independent? There's no giant corporate behemoth supporting us. Instead, it is supported by you, our listeners, through Patreon. That's correct. If you become a Patreon, you are helping to make this podcast happen and, you know, helping to support us and lift us up. Plus, you get audio extras every other week, you know, with every single episode, and you get access to our Discord channel where we just hang out all the time. We do. Think about it. All of that could be yours for a few bucks a month. Anything you give us goes right back into making our opinions even more correct. Find us at patreon.com slash our opinions are correct. All right, let's get this show on the road. Poop, poop.
1: of intuitive sense to me that science fiction and fantasy would romanticize cars because they're a shiny new technology. They promise to change everything. They kind of abolish the idea of space by getting you from one place to another really quickly. But how did that happen? You know... People in
0: general were a little suspicious of automobiles at first, like in the early days of the automobile, they used to call them stink carriages. Early (laughs) cars were noisy and obnoxious and not entirely reliable, and they were seen as a status symbol that only rich people could afford. So, you know, perhaps the first speculative fiction story that deals with cars a lot is kind of ambivalent about it. It's The Wind in the Willows, the 1908 novel by Kenneth Graham, in which... Toad of Toad Hall becomes obsessed with the romance of the motor car. And in this story, cars are fun and exciting, but also destructive and a waste of money. They're both. That is the only way to travel! Woohoo! Here today, in next week, tomorrow! Boop boop! Now Toad. Boop boop! Boop boop! Boop boop! Boop boop! And you know, I love... How Toad is just so excited about his car, and it's sort of infectious. You want to drive that motor car too, even though it's also portrayed as kind of an unhealthy obsession that could bring Toad Hall down. I especially love the way he goes poop poop when he pretends to be a car, which comes from the original book. And like every adaptation of it has poop poop as like an important part. (laughs) That clip incidentally comes from the 1983 stop motion animated version of Wind in the Willows. And I just want to add that like, I feel like there's two strands that are showing up here that become important later on. One is cars are cute. They're cute and kind of whimsical and fun, but also they're individualistic.
1: Yeah, I mean, I remember as a kid going to Disneyland and riding on a ride called Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. And it was scary. Yes. And the whole point of the ride is that you're getting inside of a car and the car is careening out of control and you almost hit a bunch of things. And it's, it's very much that. It's whimsical, but it is genuinely scary. And when I was a little kid, it was too scary for me. I had to wait until I was like seven before I was really ready Aww. for that level of engagement. So it seems like, you know, Mr. Toad and his poop-poop car, it's kind of, <laughs> it's it's not a, it, it is, it's cute, but it's an, it's kind of a negative portrait of the car. So when do we see science fiction really falling in love with cars?
0: Yeah, I think it's around the time of World War II. I mean, you mm-hmm. know, you get the Model T around the same time that Wind in the Willows comes out. You get the Model T and that starts to take off and the car companies start Actively working to shut down public transit and the federal government after World War II starts pouring vast sums into building highways. But it's after World War II that you really see cars start to be seen as a crucial aspect of being an American. And I feel like a turning point is the early 1940s. Batman first gets his supercar, the Batmobile. That's kind of introduced Mm -hmm. as a thing a year or two after Batman starts. And that becomes a big part of the Batman identity. And then The late 1950s, James Bond also starts driving fancy cars that are loaded with gadgets, beginning with the 1959 novel Goldfinger, in which he gets an Aston Martin with a bunch of like fancy shit. Now, pay attention, please. Windscreen bulletproof, as are the side and the rear windows. Revolving number plates naturally. Valid all countries. And you know, you get to a certain point in the 60s and early 70s, every hero has to have a cool car. Even like Spider Man, who could just get around by swinging webs, he had the Spider Mobile. Doctor Who had the Who Mobile. And eventually, James Bond gets a car that can turn into a submarine.
1: I mean, in the 70s, I was watching the Croft Super Show because I loved the show Wonderbug,
0: <laughs> which was yeah. kind, of, kind of a
1: takeoff on a lot of these things, sort of making fun of the idea of a supercar. But you know, the thing about, about the car in America is that it's really connected to our myth of of rugged individualism and and we talked about this in our episode about rugged individualism. So why why do you think cars are so important to this American idea of of the rugged individual?
0: It's definitely directly connected and you know Part of what's revolutionary about the car is that uh, you don't need other people to help you get where you're going other than like gas station attendants and mechanics and so on and so forth. But, you know, you can get in a car and just drive off somewhere on, as opposed to a train where it's like communal transit or even a horse and buggy. Often a bunch of people are riding together because, you know, you it's... Complicated and expensive, and you need someone to drive the horse and buggy, and it's like a whole thing. Mm -hmm. But the car is directly tied into all these American myths about the tough guy who can go where he wants and be accountable to nobody. And you know, I always think about like the opening credits of the 1960s kind of paranoid survivalist show, The Prisoner, where Patrick McGowan, who's playing like a spy who's trying to get out of the spy game, he drives his little sports car really, really, really fast along secluded country roads. And this symbolizes his, you know, relentless pursuit of individuality and his rejection of conformity. It's that whole sort of James Dean thing. Nobody can tell you what to do because you can just get in your car and drive off into the sunset.
1: I'm gonna bring up another important car touchstone from this era, a little bit later, the early 80s. Um, There's this song by the very important Canadian band, Rush. And it's called Red Barchetta. It's kind of, it came out in 1981. It's considered one of their classics sort of prog rock songs. And it's a science fiction story about this future world where cars are outlawed, but like one lucky kid gets to drive his uncle's secret sports car. And it's like all of the sort of elegiac uh, singing about the freedom of being in this car, plus the like awesome guitar and, and drums and stuff. So woo, mm-hmm. it was just so great. Um, But of course, the thing is, is that cars are also really necessary for everyday life. Like where I grew up in Southern California um, and where a lot of people live now out in the suburbs or in rural areas, like cars are just the only way you can get around because there's not a lot of public transit. So you need a car not just to like have freedom, but to like go to the supermarket. Um, And Mm -hmm. that means that in some places there's a lot of traffic car crashes, pollution. So people may love cars, but at the same time, I think a great American pastime now is to complain about cars too.
0: Yeah, and that's part of what you see after World War II is that we build all these suburbs and that becomes part of the American dream. And you can't do any of that without the car. And eventually you get into a situation where people, yeah, are stuck living in these kind of sprawly areas where they need a car to get around, but getting around with a car becomes increasingly unpleasant. But I feel like, you know, part of what goes on with science fiction kind of like convincing us to love the car in spite of all these like obvious drawbacks, is that there's kind of this weird double consciousness. Like Post-World War II science fiction, and especially once you get into the 60s and 70s, there's this constant drumbeat of concern that technology might dehumanize us, and also there's a lot of concern about the destruction of the environment, but you often see those same stories turning around and celebrating cars as an unalloyed good. And, you know, as an example, the early 1970s Doctor Who, John Pertwee's Doctor is obsessed with driving souped-up cars. It's a major (laughs) part of his character, but he also constantly lectures the viewer about pollution and about the dangers of letting technology shape our lives. And often in the same breath, he'll be like, I love cars. Also, pollution is bad and technology is, is, can be misused and is scary. It's like we couldn't bring ourselves to think of the car as a negative thing. So we just kind of exempted it from all of our technological and ecological concerns.
1: Um, I'm sorry. I need to like back up a second because I'm still obsessing about the fact that you mentioned earlier that James Bond's car could become a submarine. Like, what is yes, that? it's
0: so true. And like, I used to have that as a toy actually. So in the 1977 film *The Spy Who Loved Me*, James Bond's car turns into a submarine, like you do. That submarine <laughs> car, incidentally, was referred to as Wet Nelly, which I think is like the least <laughs> macho car name ever wet nelly
1: oh my god wet nelly is like james bond's drag name
0: (laughs) it really is oh my god somebody write that fanfic and send it to us please
1: yes please so the point is that in in sort of pop culture suddenly cars are doing all kinds of stuff it's not just regular car stuff right
0: Yeah, at a certain point, it's not enough for cars to have, like, you know, missile launchers or to squirt out oil so that people can't chase you or to, like, have, you know, all the other wacky gadgets that James Bond's cars have, like an ejector seat. At a certain point, cars have to cross over and start doing things that are utterly fantastical. And the classic example in speculative fiction, of course, is the flying car. And Ian Fleming, the creator of James Bond, also gave us one of the first flying cars in pop culture in the 1964 novel Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, which was later made into a film. And again, it's very heavily into the cute aesthetic. Like, you know, Uh Chitty Chitty Bang Bang is an adorable, adorable little critter. And at the same time, you see the Jetsons kind of zooming around in their own flying cars, and it becomes kind of a unique signifier for the future. Like, in science fiction, especially of that time, but even now, you know you're in a futuristic city when you see cars zooming around in the sky.
1: Yeah, exactly. And then in the super, super future, it's like Coruscant from Star Wars, where it's right. like, there's like 15,000 layers of, of flying traffic. I was recently um, part of an event about the future of transit um, at the New America Foundation where Pete Buttigieg came and, and was talking to us. Um, and we were talking about flying cars, especially because they're this kind of retrofuturist idea that's become really calcified. Like, Even though we know, any of us who are reading current technology news, we know that the future of cars is autonomous cars or uh, cars that are running on sustainable fuels, but we still keep clinging to this flying car thing because I think certain visions of the future just become calcified. We just keep turning back to them, even though we know that they're not really a cutting edge vision of the future anymore. Yeah, that kind of ties
0: back into our love of nostalgia in a way, like futurism and retrofuturism become kind of blended and indistinguishable. And, you know, the flying car is a terrible idea for all sorts of reasons, including that all of those fatalities that we talked about before would be much worse in a flying car. Like, You can survive a car crash now. I don't know if you would in a flying car. I don't know. I don't think that the future of transportation should involve cars as like an indispensable element if possible. I think that we should try to get away from that because even even if you're using more sustainable fuels, it's still going to be very... Environmentally unfriendly and very resource-intensive to have a single car for one person. But anyway, so flying isn't the only thing that cars start to being able to do. By the 1980s, you have cars doing everything. You have the Transformers, which are cars that can turn into fighting robots, right? And those are freaking awesome. You also have cars that can think for themselves, like Kit. The self-aware car in the Knight Rider TV show that actually can be your best friend and have a personality of its own, which is kind of what people always wanted from their cars. They always wanted their cars to not just drive them around, but also kind of talk to them and be their best friend and kind of hang out with them. And then, of course, in the Back to the Future series, there's a DeLorean that can travel through time and also it can fly so it can just do everything.
1: So why do you you think there's this shift from cars being just awesome vehicles of our freedom to having like actual superpowers like like they can fly they can actually they're sentient they can turn into giant robots like what what motivates that transition.
0: You cannot discount the importance of selling toys, especially in the 1980s. Selling toys was like why a lot of creative decisions got made and that's certainly where the Transformers came from. Also, it's kind of an extension of The idea that cars are a cool technology. And so the moment you have a cool technology, you want to just imagine it getting cooler. And, you know, it kind of builds on that thing we talked about before where cars are both like individualistic and macho, but also cute. And like some of these things make cars cuter in the way that, you know, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang did or Herbie the Love Bug comes to mind as well. Also, I think that when you think about those flying cars in the Jetsons, they're not just like a cool development, they're a way of imagining a future that is just as car-centric as the present. And you know, at a certain point, if we want cars to continue to be the center of our lives in the future, we have to imagine them becoming more futuristic.
1: Yeah, um, the the series Cars comes to mind too, which is all yeah. about these kind of cute sentient cars. Um, although that's mm-hmm. set in the present.
0: Well, it's is it set in the present? We don't really know. I it's mean, set in yeah
1: yeah a fan? It's set in in some sort of you know secondary world where cars are sentient beings. And there's
0: like a there's like an internet theory that like Cars takes place in a post-apocalyptic world where humans have all died out. And the cars have just become sentient and are now living without us, which I kind of love.
1: I also love that. So it sounds like what you're saying is that basically science fiction sold us this idea of the car as essential to the present. And now it's trying to convince us that cars are essential to the future too.
0: Yes, it is not enough to be like completely dependent on and kind of in love with cars in the here and now. We need every possible future to revolve around cars, too, because otherwise, you know, we're going to lose our individuality or our, our, you know, our sense of like ourselves as having total freedom to go everywhere. So, you know, it's this idea that we will never outgrow the car because the car will continue to grow with us. It'll take to the skies. It'll start talking to us. It'll be our friend. And, you know, that seems like a good place to take a little break. When we come back, we'll talk about some stories that are maybe a little bit more critical of The Cult of Cars. If you've ever thought, how does climate change impact my life? Then I have the podcast for you.
1: Climate change is usually siloed as a scientific story or some kind of far-off problem, but everything is a climate story.
0: That's why The Carbon Copy covers climate change in a unique way, by connecting it to the major cultural, economic, business, and tech trends that shape the world around us.
1: It's hosted by veteran climate reporter Stephen Lacey. The Carbon Copy informs, enlightens, and sparks curiosity on the many ways a changing climate will impact our lives.
0: From Russia's war on Ukraine, to the housing crisis, to Elon Musk's cultural influence, explore how climate change and the energy transition connect to the biggest stories of the day.
1: So you should listen and follow The Carbon Copy wherever you get your podcasts so you can stay informed about this important thing that actually is related to cars and everything we've been talking about in this episode. So get educated and listen to The Carbon Copy. So we already talked about Wind in the Willows, which has a somewhat mixed view of cars. And I feel like if we kind of roll back time and go back to the early 21st century, that maybe Aldous Huxley's novel Brave New World is one of the first car-centric science fiction novels. It's all about a future society that worships Fordism, and they all have these... T-shaped religious icons in reference to the Model T. They've broken the tops off of all of their crosses. So it's explicitly a transition from Christianity to car worship, and specifically a worship of the kind of industrial production model that goes along with cars. And of course, they're now producing people in the same way because it's a world where people are mass produced as clones for cheap labor. And so this is a novel that is super critical of cars and even more so the cult of the auto industry. So I'm wondering, were there other early stories that criticized cars? Yes. In fact, one of the
0: first science fiction stories about cars is incredibly critical uh, to the point of kind of absurdity. There was a doctor named David H. Keller who wrote a story in 1928 called The Revolt of the Pedestrians. And it was published in Amazing Stories magazine. In Keller's story... Humanity has evolved into two separate groups. You can already see that this is getting kind of ridiculous. <laughs> so, humanity has evolved into the automobilists and the pedestrians. The automobilists are people who drive everywhere in their cars, and they have lost the use of their legs because they no longer walk at all. And here's a good place to point out that the story has a lot of ableist and eugenicist themes. It's definitely of its time. And meanwhile, the other group, the pedestrians, are people who, as their name suggests, walk everywhere. One of the story's main characters is the daughter of a wealthy automobilist and she is an evolutionary throwback. She has legs that work, she can walk, and all the other girls make fun of her. She's kind of persecuted for being able to walk and, you know, we're supposed to, she's kind of the underdog that we feel sorry for, I guess. But the actual hero of the story is a pedestrian named Abraham Miller who has a family member who was injured in a car accident years ago. And so he vows revenge and he finds a way to kill all of the automobilists and restore humanity to our true destiny, walking around on our own two legs.
1: Wow, it sounds like a much more violent and terrible version of the movie WALL-E, where, you know, you have all these humans who've been living in space for so long that they they also have lost the use of their legs because they go around on these sort of automated little buggies in their spaceship.
0: Yeah, and again, there's a lot of ableism and a lot of other stuff going on there, and, you know... That that's the thing that we should acknowledge, that when you – some critiques of the automobile kind of shade over into – like, automobiles are important for disabled people, and they also, you know, provide access to a lot of people who are denied access, and there's there's a lot of class issues that go into this that we have to acknowledge – But what's interesting about the revolt of the pedestrians is that in that story, the people who reject cars, the pedestrians, are the rugged individualists, whereas the car people weirdly are depicted as socialists who want everything to be run according to their principles. So it's the opposite of the meme that became dominant after World War II, where having a car makes you a rugged individual and probably wanting to take public transit makes you a socialist. But, you know, at a certain point during America's so-called love affair with the car, people do start to push back, there were countless anti-car protests in American cities in the 1950s and 1960s. These usually happened after a child was killed by a reckless driver, and they were often driven by women and people of color, some of whom didn't have access to cars to the same degree. Um, Some cities had freeway revolts against the initiative led by Robert Moses to carve up cities with these freeways that basically would ruin their quality of life and make neighborhoods unlivable. And around that time, you start to see more kind of satirical movies that deal with cars as actual instruments of murder, like Death Race 2000, which Annalie, I feel like you are the expert on this film.
1: (laughs) Um, I love being called to the table as an expert on Death Race 2000. This movie's been remade um, more recently, but with the original, Statham, right, um, who is perfect for this role. Uh, but the original is this really classic cult movie from 1975, directed by Paul Bartel, who's also a kind of classic cult director. Um, and it's this really dark satire that is absolutely a precursor to stories like The Hunger Games or The Purge. So they're set in this far future of the year 2000. when The future. US... Right. The distant future, the year 2000. So in that far future, uh, the U.S. government has gone fascist and they keep people in line, partly through this popular entertainment, kind of a reality show, a reality game show, called Transcontinental Road Race. And basically, drivers compete in this crazy auto race across the country, and they they trick out their cars with all kinds of deadly things. Each driver has a kind of, like, wrestler persona. So, like, one of them is Frankenstein, and, like, they all have these little car angry car names and they win partly by winning the race but they also rack up points by killing pedestrians and other vehicles and so like killing like a pregnant mom gives you like more points than just killing some random dude i feel like this this movie influenced things like grand theft auto like it's just this hyper violent Representation and it's definitely a critique of car culture and also its sort of rugged individualism taken to its worst extreme. The year 2000, America is a vast speedway. People line the streets to witness the greatest drivers on earth in a race from sea to shining sea. This is a death race. You finish first or not at all. Death Race 2000. Every car a deadly weapon, every spectator a potential point.
0: And, you know, meanwhile, I feel like around that same time, you start to see more horror movies about murderous cars. Like Stephen King, he had Christine, and he also had Maximum Overdrive, both of which were about cars coming to life and killing people. And then, of course, there's the ultimate classic, Blood Car. And why do you think that we start to see so many horror movies about cars slaughtering people?
1: I mean, obviously, it's partly what we've already been discussing about how cars are really deadly. And I think there's a big problem of where to place blame when somebody is killed in a car crash. You know, sometimes it's really obvious like say it's a drunk driver, but a lot of times it's it's sort of a systemic problem like maybe, you know, the driver isn't paying attention, but like they're not there's no intentionality behind Hurting anyone. They're not murdering. It's just, it's the car itself, or it feels like it's the car itself that's to blame. And so I think you get a lot of fantasies like Christine, where you can blame the car instead of blaming a system that promotes driving. And that's very satisfying to have something concrete that we can blame. But one of the reasons I fucking love this indie flick called Blood Car, which you should all go out and watch right away, is that it's directly about fossil fuels. It's this super bonkers satire where um, set in the future and it's post-peak oil, there's pretty much no fuel available to people. What What is there is very expensive. So people have cars, but they can't really drive them. And so there's an environmental activist who is trying to invent a form of sustainable fuel that can um, be used in cars. So he accidentally one day cuts himself and his blood gets into this goop that he's making. He puts it into the gas tank and the car runs great. So he's basically discovered that human blood is a form of, of green energy. And you just you have to watch the movie to see where it goes from there because it just sort of starts with automobile vampirism and then it just goes even crazier.
0: Yeah, and meanwhile, we mentioned how Doctor Who in the 1970s was all like, cars are great, cars are great. Yeah. Um, and he had the Who-mobile and everything. Later, during the David Tennant era, you get two separate stories that are highly critical of the automobile. First of all, there's Gridlock, which is directly dealing with traffic problems, people are stuck in an endless traffic jam that just goes on for years and years. Who the hell are you? Sorry, motorway foot patrol. I'm doing a survey. How are you enjoying your motorway? Well, not very much. Junction 5's been closed for three years. Thank you. Your comments have been noted. Have a nice day. And then, you would know, of course, the doctor figures out a solution, and this is very much in the mold of other Doctor Who stories that offer social commentary through a fantastical lens, showing how Utterly weird it is that we all accept the necessity of sitting in traffic for hours and hours of our lives, and then later there's another story that's like a two-parter called the Sontaran Stratagem. I think that's at least what one of the parts is called, where self-driving cars murder people, and these cars are supposedly low-emission, but then da da da, they emit deadly gases that choke you to death, and it's just sort of like basically saying that like things like self-driving cars and like you know, low-emission cars and cars that are more environmentally friendly are still going to end up
1: killing us, right? Like blood car, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and I feel like there's other recent science fiction stories where you see self-driving cars killing people, like in the show Upload, where that's kind of the the basis of the plot is that this guy has has died in a crash with a self-driving car.
0: Right. And the self-driving car was like hacked or something. And I feel like it almost became a cliche for a while there. I would be watching TV and there would always be a bit where someone is in a self-driving car and it goes out of control and then it crashes and the person dies. And then the car says, you have arrived at your destination.
1: it's like... (laughs) Fast and the Furious, of course, when, like wh- whichever number it was in the series, uh, Charlize Theron is like a super hacker who takes all- over all the self-driving cars and they become like a murderous um, army of self-driving cars. Um,
0: man, yeah. it just, it's, it's a vuln, <laughs> it never it's stops. a vuln, man. It's a vuln. <laughs> um,
1: but there's also a
0: whole other strand of science fiction that we kind of talked before about the suburbs and about sprawl. This is a thing that science fiction has criticized over and over again. And, you know, you have like, William Gibson's Sprawl trilogy, which is about kind of like urban sprawl and about, I mean, at least it kind of touches on urban sprawl and the notion of like, you know, sprawl is a byproduct of our car culture. And then, of course, the Drudge Dread comics and films often deal with like the, I mean, they have these mega cities that are explicitly sprawly and like they're just impossible to get around. Everything is basically LA, only worse.
1: Yeah. And of course, you have things like the original Mad Max films, which are about a world that's running out of oil due to an over-reliance on cars. And at the same time, those films, including Fury Road, absolutely glorify cars and trucks and motorcycles.
0: Yeah. So basically, on the one hand, you know, after World War II and increasingly in the like 50s and 60s and into the 70s, you see pop culture starting to insist that cars are amazing and wonderful, and they're both adorable and macho at the same time, and driving a car makes you a really cool person. But at the same time, you start to see a bit of a backlash from science fiction and especially from horror. A handful of creators are making stories that kind of point out all of the drawbacks of the automobile, including all of the ways that cars kind of mess with our quality of life, including killing us, but also just like making the air unbreathable and just everything. But it's notable that, you know, when we talked about pro-car stories, we were talking about James Bond and Batman and, you know, Transformers. And when we talk about anti-car stories, it's a lot of obscure horror movies, a lot of like random episodes of TV shows, and a lot of short stories that nobody even remembers. They're either very silly and weird and fantastical or kind of obscure and little known.
1: Yeah, I mean, what do you think it would take for a story that's critical of the automobile to become as popular as, like, I don't know, Transformers?
0: You know, I think that there would need to be kind of a larger backlash against cars in general, which in turn would maybe require there to be better options, you know, better alternatives to, to, to driving your own cars. Like, we need more, we need better public transit, which would need in turn for us to invest money in public transit. And, You know, We're not going to get more money for public transit unless pop culture is kind of pointing out all the ways in which our dependence on cars is a bad thing. So we're kind of trapped in a vicious circle here. And I think – I've been thinking about this a lot. I think that the way to break out of the vicious circle is not just to kind of try to make more pop culture that questions our dependence on cars, but also to have more pop culture and more storytelling – uh, which kind of imagines other kinds of transit and other ways that we could get around that might be more environmentally friendly, more sustainable, and just nicer than than cars. And I feel like you've been doing this in some of your recent work. Uh, but I feel like a lot of like really interesting stuff right now is kind of trying to imagine better cities and better ways of getting between cities that is just better for our quality of life.
1: Yeah, like, let's stop imagining flying cars and like make public transit sexy, you know, what, Mm -hmm. what's next for, for transit? You know, there has to be something in between the flying car and the transporter that we can Mm -hmm. romanticize, you know, (laughs) we're not going to get transporters quite yet, but we can get something else that's, that's glamorous and futuristic. So I'll see you there in that future.
0: <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe Thomas the Tank Engine is what we really, that's the hero we really need. Just a really cute, heroic train. That kind of double nature of cars that they're both cute and macho is like really hard to fight against because they get us from both sides, you know? They're adorable. They have little faces, like their headlights are like eyes, and they're just like cute little critters. I think that the other thing is like if we get more cute robots that aren't cars, that would really help because they could steal some of the thunder of cars. Like, just cute robot friends. I'm into it. I think that's a good place to leave us. More cute robot friends, please. So... That's the end of our show. Thank you so much for listening. It means the galaxy to us. And, you know, if you just randomly stumbled upon this podcast, we're available wherever podcasts are found. And if you like us, we really appreciate it if you could leave a review in Apple Podcasts or other places where podcasts are reviewed. And if you really, really like us, we have a Patreon, like we mentioned before, and you can support us on there. Patreon.com slash Our Opinions Are Correct. We're also on Twitter at OOACpod. And we totally respond to your tweets if you tweeted us about the podcast. So thank you so much to our heroic and brilliant and just like indefatigable producer, Veronica Simonetti, who just makes this show so much better. And thanks so much to Chris Palmer for our amazing music. And thanks again for listening. Um, If you're a patron, we'll see you on Discord and you'll get an audio extra next week. Everybody else will be back in two weeks with another new episode. And, you know, stay robotic.
1: Bye! Bye!